everybody. We are going to get started just, you know, 30 seconds earlier here than, uh, than the clock says it's time because we've got some important progress to make tonight and I don't want to, uh, I don't want us to miss out on anything. So if you will join me in the book of Ezekiel and chapter 37, Ezekiel 37. As always, if you have trouble finding Ezekiel, just open your Bible up to the middle You'll most likely hit Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah. Just flip to the right, past Jeremiah and Lamentations, and you will hit Ezekiel. When you find your place in Ezekiel 37, will you please stand and join me in the reading of God's Word? A, um, a really unique um, allegory is, uh, is being painted here in Ezekiel 37. So let's read it together and then we'll talk about it in context. Let's just take these opening 14 verses by way of introduction. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley It was full of bones. So go ahead and imagine that scene. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. And I will say, I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So, verse 7, I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. That's, that would be super creepy, right? A rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones, so this is the answer to the riddle, okay? These bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord 
when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we come to these incredible, (laughs) incredible words. A, a, A remarkable a confusing, an unusual, but also a tremendous picture told in words. Um, We pray you would give us minds to understand tonight, ears that can hear, hearts that are willing to receive, and a will that can obey as we are instructed by your Spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. If this were Sunday morning, I would probably take three weeks or more to teach those 14 verses. Given that it's Wednesday night and we're doing this survey style, we'll cover that plus two and a half more chapters tonight. So uh, we won't be able to extract all of the the milk, if you will, uh, from that passage. But we should get a good glimpse of what it's all about. The promise of last week, the end of Ezekiel 36, is awesome. Look with me at verse 22. Therefore say to the house, this is chapter 36, verse 32. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. God says, I'm going to restore you from this captivity, not because you deserve it, but because I am good. Right? Tremendous. And then that's backed up with some if you will, hows. How will this happen? Well, verse 25 of the same chapter, I will sprinkle clean water on you, which is always a picture of of being washed, if you will, of sin. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's such a tremendous promise. It is the only solution to the problem of sin in the life of mankind. A liberal, progressive, democrat, utopian agenda believes that if we can generate the right circumstances, mankind would flourish in his natural goodness. The Bible says, nah. The the story of the Old Testament is essentially God putting man in the ideal circumstance and the sinfulness of man erupting in those ideal circumstances anyway, totally disproving the notion that if just the environment were good, man would be good. 
And so God puts them in the ideal environment. He blesses them. He, they're, they're in a special land. They have his unique and wise law. They have his provision and his protection. And the sin of man ruins it and rebels against it and tramples it underfoot over and over and over again. Cyclical generations of it proving this one vital Fact, the only solution to the problem of our sinfulness is to be remade from the inside out. We need a new start, a new heart, which is in biblical terms, the heart is the core, it's the seat of emotions and will. There is no circumstantial external solution to the problem of our sin nature. We need what God promises here, a new you, born not of the sinful seed of your father, but born of the perfect seed of your heavenly father. And that's why Jesus said, unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. To which the, the rational mind responded to him and said, how, how, what am I to re-enter my mother's womb? What are you talking about? Jesus said, no, no, not physically, spiritually, in the more real part of you than your flesh and bones. That's where you need to be remade in order to deal with this problem of sin that has invaded and perverted God's beautiful creation. But the promise is almost too big. Do you know what I mean? I'm gonna sprinkle you clean and I'm gonna wash your sin from you and I'm gonna give you a new heart and make you new from the inside out and put my spirit, that spirit that hovers over the tabernacle in a pillar of fire and cloud, that's gonna be inside of you. The promise is too big. Do you know what I mean? If we're to approach chapter 37 we have to recognize this key. As great as the promise is, the mystery and perhaps the doubt about it is greater still. As great as the promise is, the mystery in the mind of man and the doubt about that promise is often greater still. Now, what do I mean by that? Simply this. Great biblical promises are often accompanied by equally great mystery and doubt. Abraham was told by God that he and Sarah would have a child in their old age, well past childbearing years, and that they would be, their son would be the forerunner of an innumerable nation. How? Abraham knew not. It was mysterious to him. And Sarah responded with laughter of doubt. Mystery and doubt were the natural human response to the great promise. Another one, Jesus told his disciples again and again, he would be delivered over to the Gentiles, he would be crucified, but he would rise again on the third day. When you read the Gospels, you go, Jesus told them what would happen. Yet when it did happen, what did they do? They fled the mystery of that promise 
remained firmly in their mind. How can this be? That can't be what he meant. So he must mean something else, and I'm just too dumb to understand, and I'm definitely not going to ask. I've already asked him 1,400 questions today. I can't ask him that one. So the mystery in the mind was so strong because of the greatness of the promise. And also there was, of course, the doubt Doubting Thomas famously, I won't believe Jesus is resurrected from the dead unless I put my finger in the holes in his hands, right? Mystery and doubt, natural response to the greatness of the promise. One more, David was anointed to be the next king of Israel at a relatively young age. He's probably like Pate's age when he was anointed with that special fragrant oil by the prophet Samuel. You will be the next king. Well, Israel has a king, his name is Saul. Nope, you, David, you'll be the next king. He spent his early adulthood running from that maniacal, angry, murderous King Saul. He said things to his best friend Jonathan like, as the Lord lives, there is but a step between me and death. I've still got the oil that scent in my hair from years ago. I still remember that moment. Such a great promise, but here I am running for my life. The mystery of how that is gonna come to pass, it's too great. You see what I mean, guys? Divine promises are often met with human doubt and certainly a sense of mystery as to how this impossible thing is to take place. And if there was ever a greater promise in all of scripture, I don't know what it is, than God saying to his people, I'll give you a new heart. That, that, that deep core part of who you are, I'm gonna make it brand new. And it's, it itself will be perfect. It will be sinless. Your new nature, your new core, the, the, the new part of you that, that is the seat of your emotions and your ambitions, it will have sinless nature. The promise is too great. It's too hard. It doesn't, how could this even be? I, I can't even begin to unpack, right? So that's what we have in these opening verses of Ezekiel 37. A great promise. And then God shows Ezekiel a valley full of dead man's bones. And he says, I'm gonna make this nation breathe again. Ezekiel, you think I can do that? (laughs) And it's interesting biblical language. He says, oh Lord, you know. Um, In Hebrew, the phrase that Ezekiel responds to the question with is Yahweh Adon Ata Yada. Yahweh Adon Ata Yada. Master, God of all creation, you reveal things. <laughs> you uncover mysteries. You enable us to learn. That's a, that's a weird response, isn't it? It's almost like God goes, no, 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 yes or no. 
Yes or no, Ezekiel? Oh God, you are the one who makes mysteries clear. You teach, you reveal, you uncover. It's not just that Ezekiel acknowledges that God knows a bit of information that he doesn't have. Ezekiel responds to the question saying, you are the divine master who makes unknown things known to his servants. The mystery of the grandeur of the promise fulfilled. One commentator describes that response this way. When Ezekiel cannot answer, God instructs him. So what's the point? Well, what is being promised and what God reveals is tremendous beyond words. It is so remarkable that only the almighty God who reveals to man could A, make it so, and B, make us humans understand. I I don't want us to gloss too quickly over this because being in a church environment, either growing up in church or spending decades of your life in church, words like salvation and repentance, words like, you know, heart and born again, these things are thrown around. They're talked about a lot. We read them in the scriptures a lot. There's a lot of sermons that make reference to them a lot. Uh, um, and we can almost... Um, fall into the trap of, of um, um, degradation by association. Is that fair? Like we begin to degrade the uniqueness and the awesomeness of it because we are so often associated with it. It becomes old hat or mundane. The promise that God can renew a dead heart that is trapped in sin, wrapped in sin, given over to sin, that relishes in its sin, that God can stamp that out and start over with a sinless nature inside the soul of a human being with a name and a face and fingertips and DNA and a personality, that promise is remarkable. And so the point here is is that we see the response is in keeping with the grandness of the promise. Can this happen? Church, can God rejuvenate a dead soul? Our response is yes, because we've been rejuvenated. But the real response is what Ezekiel said. Oh God, only you can make it so or even make us understand the grandness of the promise. Now, that said, Ezekiel 37 gives us a couple of things to chew on. Number one, the means of this remarkable salvation. 
the means of this salvation. It's a great thing. It's a tremendous thing that God could revive a dead soul doomed to eternal judgment. The means, which is to say the, uh, the, the how. How can this happen? Verse seven, so I prophesied. How is it accomplished? From the spoken word of God. God said, speak, so I spoke. This is the first means of human salvation. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Doing what? Teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring what? The gospel. The good news. The good news that we are desperately lost and hopeless without complete surrender to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, as our judge and king, and as our atoning sacrifice and friend. The means of salvation is first the spoken word from God. That's why we spend time in this book every Sunday, every Wednesday, and hopefully on your own every single day. Secondly, second phrase from verse seven, as I was commanded, so I spoke the word that God told me to speak as I was commanded. The second means of salvation is submission to God. There is no salvation so long as we stand on our own two feet. We don't submit and puff our chests out in self-enabling. The two things are contradictory. Obedience. The spoken word from God, submission to God, the third means of salvation, the last part of verse seven, and as I spoke obediently, as I prophesied, behold, behold. The word means look and see, not As I spoke, I did something. As I spoke and was obedient, my words did something. But rather, as I spoke, as I was commanded, Ezekiel says, behold, look and see. What's the point? God does the work. The means of salvation is his spoken word and our submission to him, but it is God who revives the soul. It is God who reaches out to us. It is God who softens our heart and makes us able to respond to him in confession and repentance. It is God who rejuvenates the dead man back to life. That's what that word behold means. Behold, look, observe what God is doing. God has chosen the obedience of man as the means through which he accomplishes his divine providential work of salvation. It isn't the preacher preaching that saves the soul, but God has chosen to use the preacher preaching to save the souls. Remarkable, right? He's doing it. It's his work. He's gonna do it. It's, he's sovereign over all of it. But he has chosen the mouthpiece of mankind to spread the gospel in submission and obedience to him. And as we do, we simply behold (laughs) and see what God is doing. 
the means of salvation here in Ezekiel 37. Secondly, what's described is the result of salvation. The result of salvation. Skip ahead to verse 22. After these people represented by this valley of dead bones, after they have been restored, redeemed, saved from their deadness, verse 22 is one of the results, I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. We don't have time to get into the history. The first result of salvation is unity. Unity. First, the nation of Israel will be unified, and finally, all of what Paul calls true Israel will be unified. That is, all the people of God, Jew and non-Jew alike. There will not be two nations. There will not be two peoples. The first result of salvation is unity of the saints in Christ Second result, verse 23, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things. Well, let's read the next phrase. Uh, Or with any of their transgressions. Second word is purity. The result of salvation, we're unified, but secondly, we are purified. Idols, detestable things, transgressions are all purged from the people of God. This is what James means when he says, you say you have faith, I'll show you my faith with my works, which is to say the evidence of a life purified from sin. Not perfect in practice, but purged of idols and detestable things and transgressions. That's willful, knowledgeable, repeated acts of disobedience against God's word. These things are purged as a result of salvation from the people of God. There's three stages, if you will, to salvation. We are freed from sin's penalty in justification. We are freed from sin's power in sanctification. And we are free from sin's presence in our eternal glorification. That's right. So if you have been justified, that is a legal standing. You're free from the penalty of sin. And on this side of it, in this spectrum that we call life in Christ, you are being made free more and more every day, every month, every year from sin's power over you, from its influence on you, from the habits that ensnare you. You are on a spectrum of progress until we are finally free from sin's presence completely when we are in glory with him. Penalty, power, presence. The results of salvation are unity and then purity. And then look at verse 23 again, the second half. He says, uh, uh, they won't defile themselves anymore. Idols and detestable things are transgressions, but look, I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. Look who's doing the work. I will save them. I will cleanse them. God does it. And look, they shall be my people, and I will be their God. The third result of salvation is possession. Possession. In 
confession and repentance and being purged of our sinfulness, God is making us into his own. The way that the way that I as a father of five children would stand in front of my children when danger is coming and say, these are mine, right? These are mine. You can't touch them, you can't hurt them, you can't come near them, you have to go through me, they're mine. That's how God treats us in confession, repentance, restoration, redemption, restoration or salvation, I should say. Possession, he belongs to us, he is our God and we belong to him. The result of salvation for national historical Israel is echoed in the result of salvation for all of God's people. So they are restored to the land, that's a picture of their salvation, but it's echoed in Revelation. Behold, God says, Revelation 21, the dwelling place of God is with man. If you've heard me preach for more than two weeks, you've probably heard me quote this scripture. It's the greatest declaration, end of a story that there possibly could be. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. I love when my kids want to talk about like, dad, if you had a time machine, you know, where would you go? What would you see? And I, 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 I just, I want to see that tabernacle in the middle of the wilderness with the pillar of fire that is representing God's presence with his people and the whole nation of millions camped around it. I want to see that. I, I, does the fire make a sound? Is there this like warm hum in the background all day long that's just like, even if your back is turned and there's the pillar behind you as you're gathering something up, you hear this like, right? <laughs> or is it like angels? Oh, like like four 18 part harmony? Like what would it have been like? Would it have emitted a, a particular warmth at night? Do you see what I mean? There's a yearning in my in my guts to, to know what it would be like to, to be in the presence of God. And, and yet, of course, we know that Jesus says, well, you're no more. My spirit will be in you and with you. But, you know, I'm a flawed human like the next guy. So I doubt like everyone else. I wanna, I wanna see what it would feel like. I wanna lay my physical eyes on that presence and power of God. So, I'm glad to know Revelation 21 says the dwelling place of God is with man. He'll dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then I'll know if his presence makes a hum or a 14-part harmony. And then of course comes this great promise, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And for those who have who've experienced deep grief, pain, that, those words come as a great promise. When you're a child and you don't even really know what grief is, those words sort of bounce off of you like Teflon. But the older you get and the more grief you experience, the more those words 
are like a precious salve to your ears, right? He'll wipe away every tear. And death shall be no more. Isn't it interesting that easily the greatest frettings of the human population are over the threat of death? We saw it during the COVID sort of mania. I mean, fear. The fear of death drove our world crazy. It's no wonder then that among the greatest promises of Revelation, at the end of everything, God's with his people, wiping tears away, and death itself is vanquished. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Yeah, possession. These are mine, death, grief, pain, hurt, insult, shame. These are mine. You gotta go through me, God says, to get to them. Possession, the third result of salvation. And then the fourth is found in verse 28. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. The word is proclamation. We should note here, friends, that the salvation of God that he extends to his people is not an end unto itself. The salvation God extends to his people is not an end unto itself because God himself puts this as the great culminating effect, the great culminating result before shifting gears. And we turn to chapter 38, is that the nations will know that there is one God who is in heaven who created all things, and that God sanctifies Israel, and this will be the promise when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore, when his presence is among them, which is to say, when the promise is complete. It's not an end unto itself. God has more in store for his purposes than merely saving people. He vindicates his own name. He proves his promises are trustworthy. He justifies his own judgments. He extends a gracious hand to the wicked to also be saved. And he places all under his servant David, which is an allusion to Jesus in the closing verses. Now as we move into a new section in chapter 38 and 39, let us not lose sight of the grandeur of this salvation promised by God and perhaps we would do ourselves a favor to live in the mystery of it and not reduce it down to something small enough that we can sort of stuff in our back pocket. Chapter 38 and 39, we'll consider together under the heading briefly of the last battle. (laughs) The last battle. We can't read all of it. There's no time. 
Theories and speculation abound about these chapters, Gog and Magog. Uh, We'll have to deal in the realm of absolutes since we only have a few minutes to consider it. The precise identity of Gog and Magog is unknown. Some suppose that it is an illustration or an allegory of Russia and China, like an alliance. Others suppose it's Syria and Turkey because of the location of some ancient cities. What seems certain is that in these chapters, an alliance of nations is described... I'm summarizing two whole chapters of Ezekiel here in one sentence, ready? An alliance of nations is described who rise up against Israel in the last days. They unite to fight for the right. I can't, sorry. They, u- <laughs> they, unite, for the, they unite to fight against Israel. That's chapters 38 and 39. Who they are, where they are, what this will be, there's a lot of speculation. Might this be a precursor to the Great Tribulation and have some coinciding um, timeline with the, the rapture of the church and the marriage supper of the Lamb? Possibly, might this be an allusion to the kings that unite under Satan's charge at the end of the millennial reign of Christ on earth? Perhaps, if all of that just went over your head, it doesn't matter right? The most helpful insight here is to view Gog and Magog as a symbolic figure representing the forces of evil intent on destroying God's people. We, ha- we have to boil it down to something attainable because I've got like seven more minutes with you. So that's the best way. The best way is to simply view these, the description of these events and these people and these places as a symbolic figure, an amalgamation, if you want to get technical about it, that is to represent the forces of evil intent on destroying God's people. They are God's people are figured here as the nation of Israel, a real people in a real place and time with real borders. However, its greater picture is the whole of God's people and the forces of evil intent on destroying the whole of God's people across the spectrum of time, culture, and geography. We don't have time to consider all of this. Let me see what we can do here. All right, let's, let's, let's try. Here we go. Ready? Ready? <laughs> Buckle up, okay, we gotta. As we think for just a few moments about the symbolic amalgamation of the forces of evil uniting against the people of God, let's consider first the word motivation. Chapter 38, verse 8. After many days you will be mustered. In the latter days you will go against the land that is restored from war. The land whose people were gathered from many places, excuse me, many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. You will advance. God is talking to this united 
force of evil. You will advance coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, verse 10, on that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates, to, verse 12, seize, spoil, and carry off plunder to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited and the people who were gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell at the center of the earth. Sheba and Dedan and their merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, have you come to seize spoil? Have you assembled your hosts to carry off plunder? to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to seize great spoil? What are we reading here? We're reading the motivation of the forces of evil. These are the characteristics consistent of those who love evil and hate God. Described in those verses are an indifference to hurting the innocent, selfish and self-seeking ambitions and then they see vulnerability in others as an opportunity for gain. That's what's described and that's what's consistent in the motivations of those who love God, or excuse me, love evil and hate God. However, verse 16 points to God's providence. So you have motivation, now let's consider God's sovereign oversight Verse 16, you will come up against my people, Israel. Again, God's addressing this united force of evil like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me. What? You mean like chapter 37, verse 28? Mm-hmm. That the nations may know me. Lost my place. Sorry. When you, when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So God's gonna vindicate his holiness when this horde of evil comes against his people. How? Well, by defeating them. But what we see here is God's providential oversight over the forces of evil. You will do this I will bring you against my land. And then he reiterates his agenda, God does, so that the nations will know me. Here, as in our recent study on Paul's confidence in God's providence, we see even the intentions of evil ultimately serve God's purposes. This does not mean that God is the author of evil, nor that evil is somehow good because God is manipulating it. Rather, if God allows it and, God's, and God manipulates it, then that means evil temporary stain on God's world is itself good. Its presence is good. When God ordains anything to come to pass, R.C. Sproul says, his purpose in doing so is altogether and absolutely good. So it's not that evil is good or the presence of evil is good, but rather 
if God allows it, it is ultimately good. It's a very strange thing to consider, but we must recognize the, the, the reinforcement that God manipulating the forces of evil ultimately unto his good. We have to recognize that reinforced principle in scripture when we see it because what other answer do we have for evil in the world today? How do we respond to terrible tragedy and grief? To horrible things happening to broken families and broken relationships and broken hearts and broken people we must be able to go back and say over and over again in the text of scripture God reinforces that he is directing even the forces of evil to accomplish his purposes and in the end as Calvin says we might not understand it now but we will understand it then when we are with him in glory we will recognize the perfect justice of all of his actions. So we see motivation, we see providence, then we see victory, verse 18. But on that day, the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger, for in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath I declare, on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Verse 20, the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the ground, and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence, and the mountains shall be thrown down, and the cliffs shall fall, and every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog and all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, so God will cause confusion in the minds of the forces of evil, verse 22, with pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him, that is Gog, and I will reign upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him in torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. What's the point? God wins the last battle. We see the motivation of the forces of evil, we see God's providential oversight, and we see God's victory over them. The imagery in this victory is mirrored in the plagues of Egypt, and it's mirrored in the Revelation victory in Revelation 16, and so therefore, like those victories, this victory will be complete. Finally, the last verse of the chapter gives us God's purpose again, so I will show my greatness and my holiness. And you think, wow, God's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna obliterate a whole bunch of people. Sounds like a really loving God. Like the kind of God I wanna like, get cozy with. Well, hold on. I will show my greatness and my holiness. Look, and I will make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And friends, what is the result of the nations knowing that he is in fact the Lord? Repentance, salvation, redemption, restoration. The deliverance of Israel is effected without the help of any human arm. It is the doing of Jehovah who thus magnifies and sanctifies himself and makes himself known before the eyes of many peoples so that they may know him to be Jehovah. It's John Skinner.
See, I'm debating right now. Because if I say, hey, Don, can I have five more minutes? And we, he's going to say yes. He's not going to say no to me in front of everybody. But it's not fair. I'm supposed to be done already. <laughs> okay. Chapter 39 reinforces chapter 38. All the way through the first 24 verses. Same concept, same idea. But verses 25 through 29 bring the subject of God's conquering justice into focus. Let's read it together. Therefore, thus says the Lord. This is chapter 39, verse 25. Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery that they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile, the hand of discipline among the nations, and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. The salvation of God will be perfectly complete for all of his elect, and I will not hide my face, verse 29, anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. The results of God's restoration that is born of confession, belief, And repentance, one of the greatest gifts is found in this phrase, verse 26, they shall forget their shame. God's triumph over sin and death, listen, is so complete His people don't even remember the shame of their human failure. What a gift, right? And so this is why one of these moments, number one, there is joy in repentance. But repentance is to confront sin and sinfulness, and that's painful. It is humiliating. It is humbling. It is vulnerable. It is staring your shame in the face. So tall a task this is, many people will go to their grave refusing to do so. We don't want to do it. But as I often tell parents, parenting young children is temporary gain for long excuse me, temporary pain for long-term gain. So too in repentance there is, if you will, pain in the night, but joy comes in the morning. We don't get to the joy without passing through the pain of confronting our shame. But secondly, there is freedom in repentance. There's joy in repentance, but there is also freedom in repentance. So often we refuse to confess and repent our sin because that requires confronting head on the sins of which we are ashamed. Little do we know, confronting them brings out 
into the open these sins, into the light where Jesus, the light of men, exposes them to our eyes, exposes them to the Father's eyes, and that is unpleasant to the nth degree. But what does the Father in heaven do with those shameful sins? He, we read, casts them as far as the east is from the west, and that he forgets our sin. There is freedom in repentance. Thirdly, there is restoration in repentance. When God describes renewing his people and forgiving them of their sin when they repent, what is the word that is used again and again? Restore. The nation of Israel restored to their homeland, restored to their purpose as world evangelists, restored in their broken relationship to God. In Christ, we too are restored, not to a physical land, not to a temporary purpose, but to something greater. In Christ, we are restored to our created position. It's the Garden of Eden with God to be naked and unashamed, as the song says. That's what Revelation 21 is all about. It's the Garden of Eden all over again, only this time there's no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's no contract humanity can violate, no possibility of failure, for Christ has been successful on our behalf, restored to what God intended in creation in perfect harmony with God. We are only truly human when we are repentant. These are all promises seen here in Ezekiel, but if there's a fourth point of application, trust is required for repentance. Trust is required. There's joy, freedom, restoration, but trust is required. Unless we trust the Lord enough to stare our sinfulness in the face, we won't do it. Unless we trust that Jesus' blood supernaturally covers that sin, we won't confess it. Unless we trust the character of God is genuinely, actually good, we won't lean on him for salvation. Unless we believe the end game of our confession and repentance is freedom and peace, newness of life, and joy with him, we will not be willing to stare our sin and shame in the eye and lay it at the feet of Jesus. It's a great little song. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Lord, thank you for this book of Ezekiel. Uh, it's rich, it's layered, um, and we're grateful for our time in it. Please hear our prayers as we offer them to you. Um, and I uh, thank you for the grace extended to me for a few extra minutes as we consider these things together tonight. In Christ's name, amen.